This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Welcome to this week's show of Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson, where we like to talk all things property within the next half hour show. Now, how can we possibly squeeze all that in with all the news that's going on? Well, we can't, but I'm just going to bring you some of the highlights for what's been happening in our region and further afield with regards real estate. We'll look a little bit at what's happening in the Manawatu, then we'll look at some of the more expensive and less expensive suburbs in the country, a little bit about what we can do to sort out the housing crisis, and then the section that some of you love, which is the bad landlords, bad tenants section. So let's rip into it straight away. We've got an article here from Stuff. It says, Consents top $223 million in Manawatu as construction industry faces a skills shortage. So Manawatu's construction boom is really beginning to pick up speed with its with the rapid growth comes the risk of stretching the region's building industry to its limit. Central Economic Development Agency's quarterly economic update found Manawatu had a record $223.3 million worth of non-residential consents approved in the 12 months before March, which is an 82% increase on the previous year. Construction is moving fast and offering confidence that we will build our way out of the economic slowdown, Palmerston North City Council Economic Advisor Peter Crawford said. However, ongoing labour and supply shortages meant the busy Manawatu construction industry could struggle to keep up with demand. The biggest contributors to the record were seven, oh, beg your pardon, $88 million worth of storage buildings consented in Palmerston North as the city's logistics and distribution centre expanded, as well as a couple of high-profile projects. The largest project contributing to this increase is the new Countdown Distribution Centre, and secondly, the new hangars and other facilities being built at Ohakia prior to the transfer of Air Force personnel to the region in 2023, Crawford said. Incidentally, residential consents were also booming. Over the first three months of the year, there were 17% more approved than the 174 in the first quarter of 2020. Townhouses plus strong growth in the aged care housing sector were the driving force on that front, with the number of townhouses receiving consent climbing 40%. Central Economic Development Agency Talent and Skills Manager Sarah Towers said the rapid growth was a sign of thriving regional economy, but it further put further pressure on the construction industry to find skilled workers. And certainly Manawatu has entered its busiest period of construction for four decades, with $1.5 billion in construction and development projects on the cards over a 10-year period, which started in 2017. Tower said that while the tradies skill shortages had been a national problem much longer than that, it hadn't been as bad in Manawatu. The boom has caught us out, and I don't think anyone predicted that level of growth in our construction industry before it started. 
Towers said the agency was working with industry groups such as the Building and Construction Industry Training Organisation to boost recruitment and apprenticeships in the trades and attract skilled workers from other regions. So it's great to see that there's uh, plenty going on, that's for sure. And it's just a matter of, I guess, not only having a shortage of skill, but it's also some of the basic supplies that can be a bit of a problem. And in this article, Palmer's North developer Brian Green said another challenge is meeting the high demand with supply shortages. Basics such as trusses, frames, hardware and fittings were all in short supply. Green said it's partially due to the pandemic's disruption of international trade, but the big picture problem was most goods in short supply were manufactured in China and those manufacturers were skipping shipping to New Zealand. They could make more money by sending bigger container ships to Australia and straight on to America rather than using smaller ships that could stop off in New Zealand ports. Anecdotally, I've uh, noticed that there are building projects which are being held up by not having some of these things available. So what's happening with the market? This article by Jimmy Ellingham on the 27th of June. It says, open home numbers down but prices not falling in Palmerston North. As prices hit records highs every month over summer, open homes welcomed unprecedented numbers of people vying for a rung on the property ladder or looking at an investment, he said. Staff visited one inner city property in January and saw dozens of people walk through for a look. Car parking space was at a premium on the road outside. This weekend the numbers were down, although the poor weather doesn't make for a fair comparison. Real estate agents still report strong interest in properties though, and prices aren't dropping. The latest Real Estate Institute of New Zealand figures show a slight decrease in the median sale price in May to 6.55 in the city. Of the 106 sales, only nine were under half a million, while 11 went for more than a million, with most seven-figure sales recorded in a month. Sorry, that's a record, the most recorded in a month. So at the end of March, the Labour government moved to call the market. The bright line test was doubled, meaning profits from selling a property within 10 years could be taxed at up to 39%, and tax write-offs for interest on rental properties were removed. In this article, uh, he says that at a rare Saturday open home in inner city Palmer's North, Adrian Van Dyke was taking a look around. He was checking out options for an investment property, but hadn't been to many open homes so far. His preferred property would have would have more than one stream of rental income, as the inner city house did because it was divided into two dwellings. Agent Andy Stewart from The Professional said he'd received inquiries over the internet about the property, and although fewer people were inquiring than earlier in the year, he was confident it would sell as demand remained strong. On a rainy Sunday in Awapuni, a steady trickle of people looked through a four-bedroom property. Professional's agent Anthony Reid said numbers of open homes had fallen this year, but serious buyers were still looking at what's for sale. First home buyers he was touch, in touch with were dropping out of the hunt, although cashed up investors remained. Now I mentioned a little bit about what I've been noticing in the market, and that's where, if we go back to the earlier time that that article was talking about in January, January, February, March, we were tending to get between 6 and 10 offers on a property if it had been on the market for a couple of weeks. So what we find now is that there is a lot less investors so there might only be about four offers on a property, but that is still a multiple offer situation. There might be one investor, but the other three are probably people looking to buy the home to live in themselves, whether it's first home buyers or people upsizing or downsizing. 
So while there is still people who are competing against property, prices will rise. So we've gone from that eight to ten offers down to about three to four as the investors have uh, largely quietened down from what I've seen. But the end effect is that that the prices are still going up uh, without uh, too many constraints because it is a supply versus demand problem. One thing that happens in a market where prices are rising rapidly is flipping properties. And remember, one of the reasons for the Bright Line test that was brought in to tax people who sell properties quite quickly was to discourage house flipping. But what's interesting is I've got an article here that tells me how prevalent house flipping actually was and how it is now. And it and you would think that house flipping is something that happened left, right and centre uh, because of all the media attention it got. But let's have a look at this. New CoreLogic data shows the number of properties being resold after being held for yes, less than a year has dropped to a tiny percentage. CoreLogic analysed the percentage of short-hold resales nationwide in the first quarter of every year for the last six years. In 2015, short-hold resales, which is house flipping effectively, accounted for 2.9% of resales. That rose to a peak of 3.8% in 2016, and short-hold resales have been declining ever since. In the first quarter of this year, just 2.1% of resales were properties held for less than a year. So it's really interesting that those figures are actually so low in the first place. I mean, the peak was 3.8, which is about four in every 100 houses. The decline is even starker in Auckland, which traditionally has had a higher prevalence of flipping than elsewhere. At the peak in 2016, short-hold resales made up 6.6% of all resales in Auckland, but this year just 1.7% were properties held for less than a year. So CoreLogic Chief Property Economist Kelvin Davidson says this suggests flipping is relatively rare, especially as the data includes short-hold resales by owner-occupiers as well as investors. In other words, if somebody buys a house and then finds that they have to sell it, uh, not uh, being in, in terms of flipping, but just for change of circumstances, so that's included. So there is this perception that there are lots of people trying to game the market via property flipping, but... In aggregate, the numbers appear that they do not suggest a major problem at all, Kelvin Davidson said. So it's interesting how the spin that the media puts on these things is that it is so prevalent, and it's not. We seem to be constantly legislating for situations that are just around the periphery of housing problems. Davidson said, as even as prices skyrocketed over the last year, the Brightline test had been a deterrent for many property flippers as it reinforced that tax had to be paid on trading profits. Public perceptions of flipping have changed and got harsher, so that may have had an impact on small-sale part-time traders who are flying under the radar. Also, given the increased focus on boosting housing supply via intensification, I wonder whether many professional traders might be focused on development and repurposing opportunities these days. So even though the tax regime has got tougher, there are still profits to be made in flipping properties. CoreLogic's data shows that there was a median gain of $120,000 in this year's nationwide short-hold resales and a median resale gain in Auckland of 148000 so that's really interesting now because that would still mean that you could make profits of eighty to $100,000 even after paying tax 
So I guess in a rising market, it's just something that people doing this would look into to see if it's going to have an, an effect. But remember, we're only talking about a very small percentage of people that actually do this. Speaking of prices, this article by Catherine Harris was on New Zealand's priciest suburb. So where is New Zealand's most expensive suburb? No real surprise here. It's Auckland's exclusive Hearn Bay. But yet Takapuna takes the title for the most expensive property sale so far this year. They sold a one point, sorry, a $13.75 million property. So properties in Hearn Bay are going for a median value of $3.16 million. And that's really quite uh, quite incredible indeed. However, in terms of growth, Manu Nui, east of Tamara Nui, in the Ruapehu district, was making the best returns. Property values in the small town have jumped 51.8% in the last year to 295000 due in part to their affordability. It's quite interesting that the provinces... Uh, took the take a prize for the fastest selling suburb. Properties in Hargist and Invercargill had a median time of just six days on the market. That's incredible. And there are hot spots within the main centres that are experiencing very strong growth. For example, the median values in Ōtara in Auckland were up 31.4% in the last year. Enderley in Hamilton cracked 30%. And Wainui Yamata, which is in the wider Wellington area, hit 35.3% growth. Really interesting. There's also signs that the fall in international tourists might be having a chilling effect on some small-town property values. In the lower South Island, property values have risen less than 5% in the past year in Frankton, which is Queenstown, Twizel and Tianel. Another article here just in the last week from Tom Puller-Strecker on stuff.co.nz. Ratings agency Standard & Poor's warns house prices may risk may rise further, risking a bigger correction. So credit rating agency S&P is voicing fears that house prices may continue to climb and then experience a, what they call, disorderly correction that puts banks at risks of higher and bad debt. An unprecedented 30% rise in house prices over the past year has exposed financial institutions to rising economic risks, Standard & Poor's says. Efforts led by the government and the Reserve Bank to restrain house price inflation had been less effective than previously anticipated. It believed government tax policies and the possibility of debt-to-income lending controls would result in a slowdown in price rises, but it said it now saw a heightened risk that property price growth continues unabated, and that, according to them, could make any market correction worse. It said there was a one-in-three possibility that New Zealand financial institutions could face a greater risk of a disorderly correction in house prices over the next two years, which could potentially result in higher credit losses. That's interesting, because that means that there's a two-in-three chance that it won't. Interesting to see how they phrase the headlines. So we're going to take a little break now. I've got some music for you, and today I was feeling a little bit like a bit of old school. This is Buddy Holly with Rave On. Oh, hell, the little things you say and do Make me want to be with you to do Rain on, it's a crazy feeling And I know it's got me reeling When you say, I love you I'm 
was Buddy Holly with Brave On. You're here on Property Matters on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio. Te reo irarangi o nga tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company. We are talking a little bit about the market before the break. And this article here from Sam Stubbs says, Housing must become the top priority again. And I just wanted to pull a paragraph or so out of this, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, and this is really the uh, – Sam Stubbs talks about the what the actual long-term fix is for the housing crisis. And he says that the only long-term fix for a housing crisis is more houses. Tax changes and the extended bright line tests are tinkering at the edges. Any trader will tell you that the long-term price of any commodity, houses included, is linked more to supply than any attempt to manipulate demand. Ironically, he says, this government has got this right when first elected by promising 100,000 new Kiwi-built homes. In hindsight, it was wrong to promise so much without the ability to deliver. But that is no reason to walk away from the most pressing problem. They have legislative powers, a huge checkbook, and voters keen to see the problem fixed. The government has the tools and they need to do the job. Our biggest domestic investors need to step up too. The Cullen Fund, ACC and KiwiSaver managers now have more than $150 billion of money to invest. They can build and operate rental housing in scale and make fair returns for their investors. So really interesting to note that this build-to-rent housing is a large and common investment for pension funds in nearly all OECD countries. Interesting to see uh, whether they go down that page here. It seems like a pretty good idea to me. This article from News Hub by Dan Satherley says the housing crisis, first home grant caps might soon be pegged to house inflation, which seems like a very good idea to me. So Housing Minister Megan Woods says caps on the government's first home grant scheme should soon be indexed to house prices to stop them becoming obsolete so quickly. First home buyers qualify for up to $10,000 when buying places under a certain dollar value, which varies from region to region. But house prices have been going up so fast recently, there are often few that qualify. Uh, one or two is a prime example. The caps are based on the median figure and the low, lower quartile of recent sales, the bottom eighth of properties. The government revealed the latest caps in March and a News Hub investigation found slim pickings in most major centres. There are some opportunities at the lower end of the market, Woods told News Hub Nation on Saturday. I opened some Kiwi build opportunities here in Auckland that have been sold this week, but look, I think the price caps very quickly get out of date. So the cap in Auckland is 700000 for a new property or 625000 for an existing property, which are unaffordable by the traditional measure that the average value should be about three times the average household's income. I think if you ever look over these long-range data sets that you will have seen, that in New Zealand, if you take the international best practice multiplier of three, we haven't had that for 20 years, said Woods. So rather than doing something to bring prices down, the government is hoping to flatten the curve, Woods said, borrowing a phrase you'd recognise from the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Then it was a strategy to keep COVID-19 infections low enough so they didn't overwhelm the health system, and now it's about keeping rampant house inflation in check. So there we go. That's uh, interesting to see. So let's see what the government is doing. And this article from interest.co.nz, how $3.8 billion of government funding is expected to get more houses built. 
So recently, the Housing Minister, Megan Woods, announced that $1 billion of the $3.8 billion housing acceleration fund unveiled in March will be used to provide local councils, developers and iwi with grants to build infrastructure to support the building of new houses. But rather than enable councils to derive funding from new sources beyond rates and debt, the government is requiring them to bid for infrastructure funding. The government wants councils to come to it saying, we've freed up this land and found three developers who together are committing to building 200 houses in this area. Can you give us some cash to pay for stormwater and eroding infrastructure to support the development? So that's sort of how it's going to work. They want bang for buck. Bucks, I should say, according to Megan Woods, um, favouring proposals that will support the building of larger numbers of houses where they're most needed. So there is concern that this could leave some regions a little bit uh, lacking, but we'll see how it goes. It depends how they prioritise what's needed and where. So now we go to bad landlords, bad tenants, and uh, we've got sort of one of each this week to have a chat about. The first one with regards uh, bad tenants, this article on stuff $12,000 damage after tenants set up animal rescue centre without landlord's permission. A landlord has found herself footing the bill for $12,000 of damage after tenants set up an animal rescue centre in their rental property. The landlord complained to Insurance and Financial Services Ombudsman Karen Stevens after her insurer had turned down a claim to cover the cost of repairing the damage. Stephen said the landlord was shocked to find her tenants had caused thousands of dollars worth of damage by keeping at least 20 cats and four dogs inside the house, as well as multiple ducks and rabbits. Dr Doolittle eats your heart out. But Stevens found the landlord's insurance did not cover loss caused by scratching, chewing, tearing or soiling by household pets. Stephen said it was vital that landlords knew what was in their insurance policies and that they or their property managers were doing regular checks. Make sure your tenants abide by the conditions of the rental. Your lovely tenant could be hiding a menagerie of secrets that in the end you might well have to pay for. So unbeknown to the landlord, tenants were caring for stray kittens and cats until they could find permanent homes for them. The house was uninhabitable from the urine stench and ruined vinyl floor which had been chewed by dogs. The government... The damage included a hole in the bathroom floor that the tenancy tribunal found had been used by a wild cat the tenant had kept or caused by a wild cat the tenant had kept in the bathroom. The landlord made an insurance claim for the damage. Carpets, vinyl flooring curtains were damaged. Floors had to be professionally cleaned, treated with odour statement and sealed with a specialised paint to contain the stench of urine. In June last year, the owners sought an application of compensation of almost $18,000 for repairs to damages of fixtures and fittings, as well as exemplary damages for while the tenants were using the property for unlawful purpose. So the, uh, the end result of that was considerable debt to be owed by the tenants. But it does show that if the owner had sufficient insurance, as there are insurances that would have covered this situation, the owner just didn't have it, uh, then they wouldn't be having to now chase those tenants for um, what ended up being almost $22,000. Now going around the other way to the bad landlord side, the tenant of an unlawful $850 a week Greylin Auckland property is awarded almost $6,000. The tenant paid $850 a week to live in the downstairs part of a property at 121 Crummer Road, Greylin, which has only consented to be used as one residential dwelling. 
The landlords had converted the house into two premises by installing a plywood ceiling at the top of the internal stairs. The downstairs part of the property had been used as short-term accommodation, but due to COVID-19, the landlord decided to offer two longer-term tenants instead. The tenant, who's been awarded name suppression, moved into premises with two other flatmates on January the 6th. Court documents show problems began when the tenants discovered the house conversion was not soundproofed. In a statement to the tribunal, the tenant said that normal walking sounded extremely heavy, audible and reverberated through the downstairs unit. I was able to hear conversations from upstairs. The landlord confirmed that when he sealed off the stairs, converting the property into two premises, he did not add any soundproofing or insulation to the stair area, the tribunal decision noted. The stairs are sealed by sheets of wood. The tenant notified both the landlord and the upstairs tenant of the noise issues continually during the tenancy. She said a flatmate had left because of noise and it was so hard to replace them because prospective flatmates asked about the noise and she did not want to mislead them. As part of the rental agreement, tenants downstairs weren't allowed to hold parties. But the upstairs, one of whom was the landlord's son, had several parties during the tenant's stay which contributed to her daily stress, her disruption and problems affecting her well-being, the tribunal said. If I'd known about this, the property being unlawful, there's no way I would have moved into the property for any amount of rent, let alone $850 a week, she told the tribunal. So adjudicator Tony Prowse found the disruption was enough to cause the tenant's daily annoyance and high levels of stress and anxiety. Prowse also found the landlord seemed to be aware if an early stage of property may not be lawful, as the landlord was well aware there was only one set of recycling bins for the property. Both of these points contributed to Prowse's decision to award the tenant Five thousand seven hundred eighty-six forty-four, and of that, the ninety-five percent of it was rent abatement due to the unlawful premises. In other words, a refund from when the tenants had started living there. The landlords filed for cross-application, seeking rent owed and damages for the tenant disposing of what Prowse called an old, mouldy, and broken window blind. All the claims filed by the landlord were denied by the adjudicator. So for heck's sake, if you're going to do things as a landlord, nothing wrong with uh, splitting a property or adding something on to try and create extra income, but it must be done lawfully. You need to check with local council and have things signed off to make sure that that's okay, or at least put a plan to council ahead of starting so you don't get yourself into this sort of trouble. Uh, That's a, a pretty big hit there for the landlord, and really, if things were done properly, that might not have happened. So that's all we've got time for this week. You've been listening to Property Matters with Greg Watson. It's been lovely having your company here on mpr.nz. If you do want to have a listen to any of the previous episodes or want to keep in track in any in the future, the Property Matters podcast is available where all good podcasts are found. Thanks again, and we'll catch up with you next week. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.